0: So this morning, uh, I want to talk a little bit um, about a fictional character that I like. Um, That's a change. Usually it's historical characters, but this one I want to talk about is a guy named Jason Bourne. I like Jason Bourne. I hope there's a real Jason Bourne out there protecting us from the bad guys. But Jason Bourne is a fictional character, first in books and then in action movies played by Matt Damon, and if you remember the story, Jason Bourne is picked up in the middle of the Mediterranean. He has serious wounds to his body, but more importantly for the the story, he has no memory of who he is. As he's uncovering this, he, he thinks in English, but he can read and speak French, Russian, German, and a host of other languages. His skill set is dizzying. He can run over a half mile at 7,000 feet elevation. He can tie exotic knots. He can create sophisticated electronical devices from bits and pieces of other devices. And the one that really kind of throws him off is he's able to disarm a policeman in a matter of seconds and without hurting him. In the books, he memorizes the the map of Paris at a glance. He is a very interesting person. Yet he knows all of this, but he has no idea who he actually is. And of course, if you've you've seen the story, you know there's layers to that. Just learning that he's Jason Bourne doesn't help, because that's not really his name. He actually had a different name, and there's all this spy stuff. But as the audience, we wonder who this guy is. And why is it that there's a group of people trying to kill him? Well, long before Jason Bourne came along, the gospel narratives had a similar question. Who is this guy, Jesus? And why is it that people are out to get him? Now, of course, Jesus' identity baffled the people. It didn't baffle Jesus. He knew who he was. But indeed, during this part of his life, he has all these skills that he puts out there and, and people go, well, who is this? Why, why is he doing this? Does he have the right? Jesus has been claiming authority. He's been teaching with authority. And now, the question is, who are you? And by what right do you have to say these things? So let's look at the context. So where are we? I know it's, it's been a little over a month since we were in Matthew. So let's review a little bit. Okay, so we are in what would be called Holy Week. We don't necessarily call it that, but it's the week of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Sunday morning was the triumphal entry, the waving of the branches and the Hosanna. That was Sunday. Monday morning, Jesus kicks off the week with a little bit of controversy. He throws out the money changers, tossing their tables and making them leave on the way back from the money changers he sees a fig tree and he curses the fig tree Tuesday morning he wakes up walks back towards the temple goes by the fig tree that is now withered and died and we pick up the story today that Aaron just read Jesus is now back into the temple having already cleaned house now he is teaching this confrontation that we see starting right here is going to continue for two full chapters. It's not going to be done until the end of chapter 23. So this is a long morning at the temple for the next few weeks. So what's the point of this passage? Well, I'm going to give you the main idea right at the start, and that is Jesus is king, and he has authority over everything, and we must respond. So this is, this is the point, you know, we've been doing this King Jesus is the name of our sermon series we've been doing on Matthew now, 21 chapters of Matthew. Jesus is the king, he has proven it over and over again, and he has authority. So right from the start, we hear that word authority, and, and most of us kind of bristle at that, right? We don't really like the term authority, except for maybe when we are the authority, so why is that? Why, why do we have such a hard time with authority? Well, I think some of the time we worry that the authority, the one in charge, is gonna tell us to do something we don't wanna do. And I think probably that's most of our problem with authority. I would rather do what I would like to do and not have someone tell me what to do. Or what if they tell me to do something and it's wrong? What if they tell me to do something that the science says is good for me, but it's actually not? What if they abuse me through their authority? We've seen that, haven't we? We've seen people abusing their authority. I think behind it all is what are the intentions for the person who is an authority? Isn't that kind of our problem? We go, yeah, okay, you're an authority, but I don't think you have my best in mind. I I think maybe you're out to get yours, or you're out to further an agenda, or you're out to do whatever, I don't think you're really thinking about me, the little guy. So this authority is an issue. And this authority is something that has been being painted by Matthew, that Jesus has authority. And right here, it comes to this culmination. We don't like authority when it does things the way we don't like or we don't feel that they should do. But we trust the authority when we know the authority has our best in mind. And very rarely, it seems like, can we trust our authorities? So let's dig into the text a little bit. So the authorities in Israel have decided way before Jesus got there that Jesus is not the Messiah. He is not the chosen one. They have a predisposed mindset. No matter what Jesus is going to do or say, they've already made up their minds about him. He is not the king. He is not the Messiah. He is not in charge. And so their mindset is already firmly entrenched. So this section, one author calls a clash of authorities. We have the authorities at the temple, and we have the God of the universe. But think about it from the authorities' point of view. Jesus has just walked into the temple, their holy place, the place that the chief priest and all the other priests have been in charge of now for centuries. He starts rearranging the furniture, right? Flipping tables. I don't recommend that as a way to rearrange your furniture. Touch of table turning here, a little dusting from the change hitting the ground, a few people with a boot in their backside as he kicks them out. Ah, that looks better. Then the next day, Jesus doesn't just stay away. He shows up and begins teaching. And there are crowds and crowds of people. This nobody from Nazareth. He's not a Pharisee, he's not a scribe, he's not a Sadducee, he's not a priest, He's not an elder, not a rabbi. He has no money, he has no station, and he's teaching? Now, we don't know what Jesus was teaching, but I bet you it sounded something like this. Blessed are those when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Or maybe he said something like this. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. Whatever he is teaching, it's not helping his case. The authorities don't like him. So you can kind of see that they're going, who is this guy, right? Like, if I come home and I find my wife rearranging the furniture, I call that Tuesday. If I come home and I find one of you there, I'm going to go, okay, well, what are you doing? Seriously, I mean, I like you all, but really? What, what's? Do you have permission, right? If I find a complete stranger in my house, I'm calling the police. So the, the, these guys, they're going, what makes you think you have the right to do this? So this starts us in verse 23. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. And by what authority, they said, are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? So Jesus has entered the temple. He has has come to the temple. Notice he did not come in and overthrow the Romans like they had hoped. Instead, he goes straight to the temple. Judgment has begun in the house of God. And you remember the temple is this gigantic, several acres, flat area. It's the centerpiece of Jerusalem. The outer courts are where the Gentiles were. That was where the the money changers were. And Jesus has cleaned them out. Then there's an interior where the women could be. And then the interior of that is the holier place where the sacrifices would be. And then inside the building is the places where only priests could go. And the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant would have been. This is the temple. Now this time of year is the Passover. So this place is jam-packed. It's full of people. There's no social distancing. There's no worrying about space. Everybody is crammed in. This place is full. Mark 11, which is the companion passage along with Luke 19, says that Jesus walked around. So he's just walking around and teaching. He's not stationed somewhere and people are coming to him. He's just walking. So some people are in line to sacrifice their their, their temple sacrifice, and they're hearing Jesus go by teaching them. He's teaching and preaching. It says he taught about the gospel and the kingdom. Luke 19 says the people listened carefully, and then they show up. One author calls the chief priests and the elders the truth squad. This group shows up. So who are these people? Well, the chief priests, these were the people that ran the temple. They were the bosses of the temple. Okay, There would have been a current chief priest known as the high priest, There would have been past high priests. These would have been the top of the line, mostly Sadducees. But these priests didn't always get along because one chief priest would do it this way, high priest would do it that way, the other one would do it this way. So imagine if you're at home and you get a knock on the door. And at the door, the door opens and in walks a man in black. You're going, ooh, aliens. No, not that kind of man in black. He says, all clear, sir, and then in walks President Biden, followed by President Trump, as well as President Obama, President Bush, President Clinton, watch out. They all, sorry, that was was bad. Um, They all walk in the door, and they sit down, and they say, hey, come here, sit down, we need to have a chat. Now, if you're in a room with all of those guys and they're all in agreement about something you did wrong, better watch out because those guys don't agree on much of anything, do they? So these are the, this, is what, this is what Jesus is having. He's having Ananias and Caiaphas and any of the other high priests. They all show up and they're all, what are you doing? You don't have the right. It's interesting to me how the enemies are able to get together to fight against the truth, aren't they? Have you ever noticed that? In the Bible, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Pharisees being the kind of lay leaders and the Sadducees, the high muckety-mucks, and the Herodians and the Zealots and the essenes you don't need to know those. It's not on the test. All of them get together, and what do they all have in common? They hate Jesus. See, we're going to see that there are always groups of people that are all against Christianity that will come together to fight against Christians. They all had divergent views, but they all had one view in common, and that was that Jesus was not their Messiah. See, the false religions can get together to point out that the true religion is not true. So the, the, the chief priests get together. Again, a crazy grouping. And then along with that, you have the elders of the people. Now, this doesn't just mean people that are older in age. What this means is this means the wealthy. These are the wealthiest of the people. They're the ones that pay for the high priest, uh, his, his running for office, if you will. So these are the people behind the scenes, the Rothschilds, the Morgans, the Rockefellers, anyone with money who is funneling it in. So you imagine this crew coming to you. Even if, I, even, if it, you know, even if we look at just the presidents, I mean, we, there would be a, an awe, but then having rich people showing up, landing in their helicopters, coming into your little house and going, we need to have a chat, there's going to be nerves, but we don't see this from Jesus. See, Jesus tells us that this is going to happen. Matthew 16, 21. He tells his disciples, from this time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Again, they didn't believe that, right? Remember, they were like, oh, yeah, whatever, we all die someday, right? That's not where, they, where he's at. That's not where the, the, the disciples are at. But yet, Jesus is saying, this is coming. So, this authority, this word authority means right or permission. Who gave you the right? They're asking for credentials. Can we see your diplomas? Can we see your um, CVs? Can we see where you're at? Actually, Jesus has already done this, hasn't he? When he he kicked out the money changers, he doesn't say, I'm doing this. He says, I am doing what the Bible told me to do in Isaiah and in Jeremiah. He's appealing to Scripture. Chief priests and elders go, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, we all agree with Scripture, but what gives you the right? Jesus is like, I already answered that. Scripture. They ask him, who gave you the right? Specifically, what right do you have? This is a pretty common refrain, isn't it? They're asking about turf, not mission. They're asking about credentials, not justice. They want to know, what is your source of authority? Ironically, they shift from what's right to who has the right. What's true to proper procedure. Oh, if you're going to teach in the temple, well, you have to have this and this and so on. Ironically, the Jewish leaders have missed the point of the cleansing of the temple. If you remember, the cleansing of the temple was, he says, this isn't to be a marketplace. This is a place of prayer. And of all the people in the temple that should be focusing on the purpose of the temple, it's the priests. And they're not doing it. J.C. Ryle says, observe how ready the enemies of truth are to question the authority of one who does more good than themselves. It's the old weapon by which the children of this world labor to stop the progress of revivals. It's the weapon which was once brandished in the face of reformers and Puritans and Methodists of the last century. It's the way the enemy tries to stop revival. Well, you can't speak. You don't have the right fill in the blank. Now, Lest you think that those things are not important. I'm not up here saying that seminary degrees and diplomas and things like that don't matter. But what I am saying is is that here in this situation, Jesus is not worried about credentials. He's worried about truth. Those things do have value and they are important. But in this place, they are wielding it as a weapon to keep the truth at bay. And that's the same thing we need to be on guard for. Just because someone has a bunch of letters after their name doesn't mean they're wielding the truth. That's why God's word is so powerful. And we have the Holy Spirit inside of us to help us see the truth that's there. So Jesus, his success means nothing. His cures mean nothing. We shouldn't be surprised at this because like Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. So this is not really a question. This is a trap. It's a trap. They think they have Jesus trapped. Because if Jesus says, well, it's my authority, they're going to go, nope, we're the authorities. And notice it too, and I just noticed this as I was reading it. In, In verse 23, it says, the elders of the people. See, that's their authority. Their authority is the people have given it to us, therefore we have the right. If Jesus claims that he got his authority from God, they would call him blasphemous. But Jesus answers their question with a question their dilemma with a new dilemma. Because the root problem is they don't want to acknowledge Jesus' authority. There's nothing that, that he can do that will make them say, you are God. Honestly, I, I questioned over and over again, what were they hoping to accomplish here? Why were they asking this question? I know they were trying to trap him, but, but really, you know, are they just trying to make him look a little bad? What was the next step? And what we see is that Jesus responds with a question, and then for the rest of 21, Jesus is now on the offensive with teaching. It's actually a pretty good question. But no matter how Jesus answers, they're not going to listen. So what are the, these things? He says, we, who gave you the authority to do these things? Well, obviously the money changers and the, and the healing... But I think there's more to it. I think there's his miraculous works. And if you remember back in in verse 15 and 16, the children were praising him. And this kind of seems like the moment where the authorities were like, wait, you got to stop them. They can't praise you. You can't do that. You can't accept praise from these kids. Jesus is clearly saying and showing he has the authority. He has the power. He's saying God has approved this and I am going to continue. So let's, let's look for just a second before we get into our next verse. Throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus' authority has been on display. The first place he had authority over was nature. We saw that just with the fig tree, right? He Goes up to the fig tree and curses it. You can try as much as you'd like if you go home and curse a plant. Tomorrow, unless it's at our house, we'll probably not be dead. Okay? But Jesus also calmed a storm. Yeah, it was pretty stormy the night before last. I woke up at 3 a.m. I couldn't go out there and go, stop. It didn't listen. Living creatures. Jesus earlier says, there's a donkey. It'll be waiting for you. Go get it. Remember when he took the fish and he took the coin out of its mouth? I hear that doesn't happen very often. Right, Timothy? A lot, a lot of fish with coins in them? No? Okay. Timothy's our fisherman. He's, he's the expert at that. Sickness. Matthew 8, leprosy. 19 times Jesus heals people that are sick. We don't have that ability. Death, Jesus heals, brings Jairus' daughter back to life. Matthew 12, Jesus casts out demons into pigs. Also, not something we should even attempt to do, nor could we do. Matthew 13, Jesus says, I will send angels. Remember in the Bible, every time an angel appears, people fall down like dead people because they're so terrifying. Jesus says, yeah, I send them, I tell them where to go. The law of Moses. Matthew 7, you've heard it said, but I say to you. So Jesus has exercised authority throughout the book of Matthew. Nature, living creatures, sickness, death, disease, demons, angels, the law of Moses. See, the thing about it is, is Jesus can say he has authority, but authority without power is not really authority. And Jesus has both. And so the authorities at this time go, you don't have the right. You have the power, but you don't have the right. And then look at verse 24. Jesus answered them, let me ask you one question. If, I, if you tell me the answer, then I'll also tell you what authority I do these things. Now, teachers in Jesus' day loved this method of teaching. It's called the Socratic method, where you ask questions based on Socrates, where you would just continue to ask questions to dig deeper. And so this would not have surprised them. It wasn't rude. Jesus wasn't being a jerk here. Instead, he just did what they expected. But they did not expect this question. Verse 25, the baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? Now Jesus' genius is on display here. He takes this and turns it right around to say, let's see how you do with determining real authority. Where did it come from? Now when it says baptism of John, he's not talking about a singular baptism. He's talking about all of John's ministry. Where did it come from? Jesus is saying, if you're not capable of figuring out where John came from, there's no way you can figure out where I've come from. He says his authority comes from the same place. Now, the people at this time thought John was a prophet. They they, they believed that. Not only that, but Herod thought John was a prophet. Remember back in Matthew 14, crazy Herod, he doesn't want to touch John because the people think he's a prophet. So there's there's this view that John is something special. He's not normal. So look at the rest of verse 25, and they discussed it amongst themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they will hold John as a prophet. It says they discussed amongst themselves. It's the Greek word dialogzion, which means dialogue. They had a discussion, all right? They had this discussion going back and forth. They talked it out, and they went, "Ah, oh, gosh, we're in a pickle. There's really no way to answer this. And it really shows their heart condition, doesn't it? See, one of the things that we need to be able to diagnose in ourselves is when we respond to Jesus' authority like these men, we are not where we're supposed to be. So there's four ways that they respond in this just short verse. The first is unbelief, that they, they did not believe in what John was doing, and they definitely did not believe in what Jesus was doing. See, their hearts were hard. Their hearts were stone. And so because of that, even when there were facts in front of them, they couldn't see them. They did not believe. The second thing we see is that they're very pragmatic, aren't they? Pragmatic just means doing something that leads to a good result. They go, we're of the people, and so if the people get mad, then we're in trouble, so let's not make the people mad. They wanted to make people happy. We see this today with Preachers and teachers who tickle the ears of people, telling them what they want to hear instead of what the word of the Lord says. They read the crowd right, but they still won't believe it. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Later in Matthew 22, the Pharisees say, you know, Jesus, you don't worry about anybody else's opinion. And they were startled by that because they worried about Jesus, worried about opinions of the people. So we see they were unbelieving, they were pragmatic, does this make the most people happy? And then third, they were imperceptive, they were blind, they were not able to see what was right in front of them, you know, and we like to think we could go back in time and if we could see all the things that God did, we would believe even stronger, but you know, those people actually saw those things and they didn't believe, there's a blindness there. So much so that even if Jesus says, here's all the miracles I've done, I'll do a couple more for you, and by the way, I got this from God, they're going to go, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think so. I can't see it. I don't. So no, it's not from God. They were blind. And then last, they were hostile. They were hostile to Jesus. This question, this attitude of, hold on a second, stop your, I mean, they, he's teaching. They interrupt his teaching to say, by what authority do you do this? This is not a raise your hand and then Jesus calls on you kind of situation. They've shown their cards. John didn't do some things they didn't like, but Jesus is doing even more. This hostility is latent here, but it's becoming more and more blatant as they move along. So their attitude was one that we don't want to emulate. They're caught in a no-win situation. They fear the crowd because the crowd is where they get their, their power from. And Jesus' counter-question shows them how hypocritical they are, how stuck they are. If John's baptism is from heaven, we should have believed in it. If it's not from heaven, the people are going to get mad at us because he's a prophet from God. What's ironic is that they're, they're actually admitting that John was right because the people said it was right. And admitting it to themselves reveals how dishonest they were. When unbelief investigates truth, it comes up with the wrong answer. Because it doesn't matter how much evidence there is. There's so much evidence that there is a God and he made this universe, but yet a majority of the people you encounter day to day don't believe it. It's not for lack of evidence, it's a lack of a, of a soft heart. So let's finish this thought for these, these men. If the authorities could see it correctly, and they could actually look at it, and they say, okay, John was a prophet, the people say so, which is where we get our authority, so they have to be right, because they say we're right. John's right. He said Jesus was the Messiah. John was right. Jesus was the Messiah. So, asking whether Jesus has authority is a stupid question. It's, it's a stupid question. Because in their logic, if they were able to be logical, they would see that Jesus is God's prophet. But they go, no, 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 we can't do that because that means he's in charge and not us. So what do they do? They punt the question away. Verse 27, they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, Jesus is not here saying, oh, I'm not gonna tell you. He's already told them. And he's going to show them continually. He's just not going to say the magic words of God gave me the authority because he knows what they're after. But what's interesting here is this answer, we do not know. This is a terrible answer for these religious leaders. What is their their sphere of, of, of being the boss of? What is their area of expertise? Religious things, heaven things. And they've just said, oh, yeah, we don't know right? That, so they, they've literally said, we are not qualified to talk about things that are from heaven. This is a crazy response. But here's the thing, you know, we think of Jesus, yeah, he's God, right? So we, we say he's wise, he's smart. But if we were to classify him in our human labeling, he is off the charts genius. Like he's playing three-dimensional chess While the Pharisees are playing checkers, right? So he is so far ahead of where they're at. I just want us to get that, the genius of Christ, that he can cut through the fog. We don't have to worry about Christ's authority leading us to something we don't want because he is so wise and smart, when leadership claims, does not know where John's Baptist originated, it betrays the most important event in Israel's history up to that point. John the Baptist was the most important man that lived until Christ, and they couldn't even detect that it was right. Their partisan control over the truth has led them to cover it up. Jesus goes, fine, I'm not answering your questions either. I'm not throwing pearls before swine. They rejected the light, so he turned it off. He says, I have nothing more to say to you. And what's ironic is he keeps talking, but let me explain what I mean. At this point, he's teaching. What comes next is his teaching changes from here's the kingdom of God and here's salvation to here's judgment. And really, his perspective changes. And we start to see a ramping up. I mean, read ahead. Look at next week's parable. The next two weeks of parables, I mean, he starts calling out their sin and their judgment that is coming. So these, these, these men in authority don't like that Jesus is taking their authority. Now, lest we think we're not like the disciples, or I'm sorry, not, lest, lest we think we're not like these men, the disciples, the ones who'd been following Jesus for years, were also worried about authority. Who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who will sit at your right and your left in the kingdom of heaven? Translation Who's going to have authority with you, Jesus? This selfish desire to seize authority is also in our hearts as well. So let's finish with this. There's lots of discussions about authority in our world. Like we talked about at the beginning, we're worried about people abusing authority. We're worried about people not having our best interests. Or just simply telling us to do something we don't want to do. We ask the question, who has authority in the house? Who has authority in the city? Who is using their authority rightly? In Matthew, Matthew points that Jesus uses authority right throughout. Matthew 7, Jesus is the authority and he is teaching. Matthew 8 23 to 27, he has authority over creation. Matthew 9, authority to forgive sins. Matthew 10, authority to heal and cast out demons. Matthew 18, he has authority in heaven. His words have authority, Matthew 24. And the book of Matthew finishes with, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So Jesus has clearly shown he is the authority. The teachers and the preachers and the rich people in Israel have squandered their authority. They've shown that they can't even have authority. So what do we do with Jesus? He has authority. He's the right authority. He is the one that is in charge. So we need to submit. Now where we struggle with this is we say, yeah, I'll submit total, yes, but not over here. Not this part. I want to submit, but if we do end up submitting that part when you feel convicted by a mean old pastor standing up and talking about areas of your life that you won't submit, we do it kind of begrudgingly. We do it like, oh, but I hope Jesus doesn't mess that up. We take parts of our lives that we say, this is mine, you can't have it, Jesus, and we give it to him. It's kicking and screaming, isn't it? And I want to really push on that and say, why? Why are there places in our lives or we won't submit to Christ. What's our problem with his authority? Do we not trust him? Do we think he's gonna abuse us? Do we think he doesn't have our best in mind? I think it probably boils down to it, we just don't like being told what to do. But I wanna show you, Jesus is not like the authorities of this world. And that is such good news. He has the right. He's the rightful king. He has every right that when he came to earth, he could say, you all submit to me, do it. I'm going to put my feet up, have a nice cold drink, and I'll just be sitting back here. But that's not what Jesus did. See, that's what we would do, right? If we were in charge of something, this morning on the way to work, I got a donut. Okay, sorry. Um, I got a donut on the way to work, and I was talking to the lady at 7-Eleven. Her name's Kendra, and, and her son plays football with Kyle. Um, and, and she was talking about her boss at her other job. And he says, it's amazing. She says, I never see him work. All he does is sit around and talk about television shows. And I said, well, isn't it good to be the boss? And she said, yeah, I can't wait till I am. And see, that's the way we look at it, right? If I get to the point where I'm the boss. I'm just going to sit back and have everybody cater to me. And that's just a human boss. God of the universe, Christ comes. He's the rightful king. And what does he do? doesn't abuse his authority. doesn't lord it over us. Yes, he tells us to do some things sometimes we don't like. But why? Let me show you why. John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So the first thing we see is Jesus uses his authority to bring us into the family of God. He says, everybody's in. Well, how does he do that? Well, let me show you the second thing. John 10.18, this is Jesus talking again about his life. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So Christ, in his authority, doesn't lord it over us, doesn't say, you must submit, get over it. He says, yes, you must submit to me, but I am going to come and I'm gonna lay down my life, I'm gonna take the authority that I have over my life, I'm gonna lay it down, And then by my authority and power, I'm going to take it back up again so that you don't have to die for your sins, so that you can have everlasting life with Christ. This is how Jesus uses his authority. He lays it down for me. See, here's the thing. With all of us and with the people in our world, authority is based on power and it's based on me. I got authority, you have to serve me. What is Jesus' authority based on? It's based on love. That's what makes all the difference, doesn't it? Jesus' authority is based on love. And he loves us, not because we're great, but because he is the epitome of love. And he lays down his life for us. So we can joyfully submit to his authority. His love overflows out to us to provide the means by which to join Him in His love. He did this by using His authority and laying it down for us. So today we are going to celebrate that laying down of His authority by taking communion together here in a moment. We've got some communion tables in the back and up here in the front. And what I would ask is go to wherever's closest to you and then we will... Sing a song together and then take the elements here in a moment. But let me pray for us as we do. Lord, what an incredible, incredible story. The gospel is good news every time we hear it, but it's still amazing. That you had all the authority in the world and you laid it down so that you could take it back up again. Lord, thank you for dying in our place. Thank you for laying down your life for us provide the means by which we could be with you. Help us to truly get that today. In your name, amen.